welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. As everybody has probably heard of the past, sometimes, I use this part at the beginning of the show to talk about exceptional individuals or organizations working in the immigration space. One of those organizations is ASSISTA. Established in 2008, ASSISTA is a national leader in the movement for safety and justice for immigrant survivors of gender-based violence. ASSISTA's founders helped write the immigration provisions of the Violence Against Women Act, affording legal status to hundreds of thousands of survivors and their children since 1994. With over 2,500 members nationwide, ASSISTA's work is focused on one, providing expert case consultation and training and other things to help attorneys and advocates navigate the complex immigration system on behalf of survivors of gender-based violence. Two, pushing for federal, state, and local policies that ensure safety for immigrant survivors. And three, coordinating lawsuits to prevent the government from unfairly deporting survivors of violence. And wouldn't you know it, ASSISTA is celebrating its 15-year anniversary with a virtual event on Wednesday, October 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Coming up. If you or your network would like to attend, ASSISTA would love to have you. Among other things at this event, the speakers will be Javier Zomara, the Salvadoran poet, writer, and activist, and Amy Goodman, the host and executive producer of Democracy Now! How you can contribute and get involved, and of course, sign up for the October 18th event in the show notes. As to me and the cases this week, well, I got two. Taking deeper dives into both of them because they're very interesting and because I got the time. I hope you enjoy. First case, Pesacon v. Attorney General of the United States, published by the Third Circuit on September 26th, 2023. This case is about controlled substances and divisibility. Mr. Pesacan is from Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
At six years old in 1992, he fled the region's brutal civil war, ultimately entering the United States as a refugee in 1998. He adjusted to lawful permanent resident status, but he never naturalized. Fast forward to 2017. Mr. Pesikin caused a car accident while under the influence of drugs and alcohol. End quote. No injuries, it seems. A blood test would later reveal that he was under the influence of many a substance. Mr. Pesikin was ultimately convicted in the Pennsylvania Court of Common Pleas of six counts of driving under the influence in violation of 75 Pennsylvania Statute Section 3802. Dare I say that Pennsylvania has the best-named trial court in the nation? Email me your rebuttal submissions. New York attorneys, don't waste your time with your ridiculously named trial court, which you insist on calling the Supreme Court. Anyway, the majority of the counts essentially allege the same driving violation, but separately named the substance that Mr. Pesikin was under. Smells like the Pennsylvania Controlled Substance Schedules might be divisible as to the substance that an individual is on or possesses, as the complaint here lists them separately, and Mr. Pesikin has received six convictions for essentially the same activity again, just based on a different substance. Not so fast. It doesn't entirely make sense to me because the Third Circuit says that Mr. Pesikin was convicted of six counts, but quote, the trial court merged all of the DUI counts into count two for driving while under the influence of marijuana in violation of section 3802 D1I, end quote, and then sentenced Mr. Pesikin to various things. And importantly, the trial court did so it merged all the counts because, quote, the Superior Court of Pennsylvania has held that a defendant should not be subject to separate sentences for multiple convictions arising out of Section 3802 D1, end quote. Obviously, this is all going to get important in a second. DHS alleged in removal proceedings that Mr. Pesikin, an LPR, was removable because he was a non-citizen convicted of violating a law relating to a controlled substance under INA Section 230A2BI. But not if, under the categorical approach, his conviction didn't necessarily involve a controlled substance listed in the Federal Controlled Substance Act in 2017. Mr. Pesikin said it didn't, and so moved to terminate his removal proceedings. He wanted to keep his green card, and he said that this conviction didn't mean that DHS could take it away. The immigration judge agreed that the Pennsylvania Controlled Substance List contains more and different substances than the Federal Controlled Substance Act, but believed that each substance criminalized under Pennsylvania law was a separate element that a prosecutor must prove in a given case to obtain, in this case, a DUI conviction. A prosecutor must prove, said the IJ, what specific substance an individual was using to obtain a DUI conviction. Therefore, applying the modified categorical approach, the IJ held that Mr. Pesikin's DUI through marijuana matched the definition of a controlled substance offense and made him removable. Because marijuana is listed on the Federal Controlled Substance Act, as it is in Pennsylvania. But hey, even that logic wouldn't fly with Florida marijuana in the 11th Circuit and 8th Circuit, right? I digress. And the BIA affirmed. The 3rd Circuit did not. When the categorical approach applies, quote, the adjudicator must presume that the conviction rested upon nothing more than the least of the acts criminalized under the same statute, end quote. 
The least criminalized conduct here means some substances not listed in the federal CSA. And everyone agrees that Pennsylvania criminalized some different substances. Pennsylvania's Controlled Substance Act is overbroad. But is the statute divisible such that the modified categorical approach applies and an IJ can look to the conviction documents and see that indeed Mr. Pesican was convicted for marijuana DUI? That is, does the criminal statute, quote, embody definitions of more than one crime and is thus susceptible to being analytically divided into those separate definitions, end quote. What a quote. To the Third Circuit, Pennsylvania Statute Section 3802 D1I is indivisible as to the substance that the individual was under at the time of the DUI. Quote, this is evident from the fact that a jury could have convicted Mr. Pesican under the statute even if the jurors disagreed about which particular controlled substance was in his blood. End quote. Indeed, that is strong evidence of indivisibility. After all, reasoned the Third Circuit further, and as mentioned a bit before, the Pennsylvania state courts instruct that multiple charges, and I guess convictions even, for a substance-based DUI should be merged at sentencing. Further indicates indivisibility. Driving while under the influence of many substances, as the Pennsylvania courts have framed it, constitutes, quote, a single harm to the Commonwealth, end quote, not multiple. And Pennsylvania courts have even called the substances means rather than elements. The BIA and oil countered by first pointing out that Pennsylvania's suggested jury instructions ask a jury to identify a controlled substance. Could indicate divisibility. It doesn't, said the Third Circuit. First, Pennsylvania criminal jury instructions don't appear to be binding. That's just right off the bat. And second, the text of a criminal statute is far more important than jury instructions for divisibility, and the text here to the Third Circuit indicates that the drug is a means rather than an element. Plus all the other logic that I just discussed. Okay. But Oil then pointed to Third Circuit precedent, holding that a different Pennsylvania statute was indeed divisible as to the substance possessed. It wasn't a DUI case, but it was a controlled substance case. But to the court here, in that decision, Singh from 2016, the Third Circuit, quote, did not hold that all Pennsylvania statutes incorporating Pennsylvania's controlled substance schedule are divisible, end quote. And importantly for DUI-type offenses, and unlike the statute in Singh, the, quote, statute's penalty does not vary depending on the identity of the controlled substance at issue, end quote something that would indicate divisibility. That is, DUI while under cocaine might be criminalized differently from DUI when under marijuana or alcohol. If those were criminalized with a different type of sentence, the statute might be divisible, said the Third Circuit, but that's not the case, and so it's not divisible. But what about the fact that the criminal complaint charged six separate counts and a bunch of substances separately? Well, in a sentence for the rooftops, quote, the government-drafted charging instrument cannot add to or subtract from the elements of a statutory crime, end quote. And boom. All of that means that, quote, no conviction under Section 3802D1I can support the charge of removability, end quote. So yeah, that kind of sounds like a big deal in the Third Circuit. And Mr. Pesican keeps his green card. Meaning, congratulations to Stephen A. Fogdahl, 
Arlay P. Helfer III, and Bruce P. Merenstein for petitioner. And that is Pesican v. Attorney General of the United States. Our final case is Doe v. United States, published by the Second Circuit on August 1st, 2023. As it was another short week of cases this week, I thought I'd reach into my bag of immigration-adjacent decisions to talk about this one. That's right. I now have a folder of decisions to discuss if the week is ever too short for my liking. This case is about summary judgment, the Federal Tort Claims Act, and equitable tolling in the Second Circuit. Miss Jane Doe, not her real name of course, quote, alleges that for a period of seven years she suffered sexual, physical, and psychological abuse at the hands of an Immigration and Customs Enforcement officer, end quote. And as the district court ruled against Miss Doe on summary judgment, the court, and so us, must take all of her allegations as true at this stage of the case. Ms. Doe is from Honduras and went to go visit her brother at an ICE office in Connecticut in 2006. She believed that he was detained there. The male officer on duty told Ms. Doe that her brother was detained somewhere else, but then asked for Ms. Doe's passport, whereupon the officer told Ms. Doe that she had an outstanding order of removal and that he could arrest and deport her. The officer let Ms. Doe leave the building, but told her to call him. She did, and the officer told her that he would come to her house and talk to her. At her house, the officer said that he'd let her and her children stay in the United States if she, Miss Doe, provided information about other Hondurans who are in the United States without authorization. She did, for six years, and so she was placed on supervised release. One year in, though, the ICE officer had Miss Doe meet him at a motel, quote, so he could show her a picture of a person he wanted help identifying, end quote, ostensibly. But at the motel, according to Miss Doe, the officer raped her, all while holding a gun to her ribs. The ICE officer raped and sexually abused her for seven years, all the way through 2014, and in a government vehicle, among other places. The officer treated Miss Doe like a slave and said, quote, I had to have sexual relations with him, and he told me that if I didn't have intercourse with him that he could harm me, end quote. The officer beat her anyway and burned her on at least one occasion, leaving three visible scars. It's pretty bad, I'm just kind of skimming the surface of the harm here. Although Ms. Doe technically could have filed suit against the ICE officer and the U.S. government and the Department of Homeland Security as early as 2007, she didn't, and she didn't tell anyone. All of this apparently resulted in three unwanted pregnancies, all of which Misto terminated on the ICE officer's instructions and sometimes with his financial assistance. Misto's own husband became suspicious, but she never told him and tried to hide everything. She developed dependency on sleeping pills and attempted suicide at least three times. She sought mental health treatment, but never told the doctors of the true reasons for her situation. Eventually, the officer left ICE and thereafter threatened to murder Miss Doe if she told anyone. That was in 2014. She remained silent about everything until 2018, when other ICE officers called her to ask her about her father's application for asylum. The father's application was based on a fear that if he was removed, the people that Miss Doe had cooperated against and got deported would harm him. 
At this ICE meeting, Ms. Doe first avoided the issue of her seven years of rape by an ICE officer, but then told some details of the assaults all those years ago. Ms. Doe, quote, felt desperate to save her father from deportation and felt that revealing the real nature of her relationship with the ICE officer and ICE would help clarify why her father had reason to fear retaliation in Honduras, end quote. I mean, and indeed, on one occasion, that ICE officer had ordered Miss Doe to perform sex acts on him in an ICE van. And when she refused, he opened the door to the van so all the non-citizens facing deportation being held in the back of that van could see her and identify her. After telling these ICE officers, I suppose Miss Doe obtained counsel and made an administrative claim to DHS in July 2018, a claim DHS denied and which was likely required to satisfy exhaustion requirements before coming to federal court. When DHS denied it, she sued the officers, some other federal agents, DHS, ICE, and the United States in federal court, bringing claims for assault battery and intentional infliction of emotional distress against the United States under the Federal Tort Claims Act, or FTCA, a state law negligence claim against ICE and DHS for allowing the ICE officer to have contact with her outside of ICE offices, and Fourth and Fifth Amendment claims against the ICE officer in his individual capacity, and a Bivens action. All very complicated, but then again, nearly the only way is to sue the U.S. government for harm. The ex-ICE officer was deposed, and he pled the fifth to every single question asked of him. After discovery, which I can only imagine produced some supporting evidence to have gotten this far, all defendants moved for summary judgment on all the claims, it seems, based on Ms. Doe's failure to make her complaints within various statutes of limitations. All of which she was in fact over. She brought all these claims outside, apparently, the statute of limitation period. She didn't bring her claims in time. She filed this suit at least four years after the last alleged incident, apparently untimely for all such claims. Because of that, for this procedural reason, the district court granted summary judgment to all defendants. Procedural requirements can have very real consequences. Miss Doe appealed. And just like you and me, most likely, the Second Circuit felt pretty icky about all of it and sent it back. Because, said the court, it wasn't satisfied with how the district court judge had analyzed equitable tolling of those statute of limitation deadlines. I mean, and in fairness to the lower court, it did consider equitable tolling. It just didn't believe it warranted here. But it might have been, said the Second Circuit, at least for the FTCA and Bivens claims. The district court needs to do more fact-finding. As in immigration law, with, say, certain types of motions to reopen, and now deadlines to file a notice to appeal with the BIA, quote, before a court may exercise discretion to grant equitable tolling, a litigant must demonstrate as a factual matter the existence of two elements. First, that some extraordinary circumstance stood in her way, and second, that she had been pursuing her rights diligently, end quote. Those are the two requirements to equitably toll a filing deadline. Had the district court conducted the proper factual inquiry here, the court might have indeed concluded that an extraordinary circumstance stood in Ms. Doe's way, preventing her from commencing all of this sooner. Quote, whether a plaintiff faced extraordinary circumstances depends not on the uniqueness of a party's circumstance or the outrageousness of what they endured, but rather the severity of the obstacle impeding compliance with a limitations period. End quote. And like here, quote, 
among the extraordinary reasons that may justify equitable tolling of a statute of limitations is a defendant's effort to threaten or retaliate against a plaintiff if she files a claim against him, end quote. In the immigration world, that seems like a quote that might be relevant depending on the facts to, say, a late-filed ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen. Far more potentially relevant to immigration matters subject to equitable tolling, quote, several courts have recognized that the psychological impact of long-term or extreme sexual abuse can constitute an extraordinary circumstance that prevents a victim from coming forward even for some time after the abuse has ceased, end quote. In this case, given the power dynamic between a non-citizen and an ICE officer, the explicit threats asserted on summary judgment, and the years of sexual abuse, the Second Circuit saw a potential case for equitable tolling. And of course, the ICE officer, quote, was a government official with the power to hasten the deportation of her and her family members, end quote. Just because she eventually came forward and told her story doesn't mean that extraordinary circumstances did not stand in her way before. So that's the first element for equitable tolling. What about the second one? Did Miss Doe then exercise reasonable diligence in pursuing her claims when she became able to? Well, first explain the Second Circuit. Reasonable diligence is just that, reasonable. It does not require, quote, maximum feasible diligence, end quote. Under the proper factual review, to the Second Circuit, the district court, quote, could reasonably determine that the fear and psychological impact caused by the ICE officer's assaults prevented Miss Doe from being able to begin seeking redress for several years after the abuse ended, but that as soon as she was able to, she began taking steps to vindicate her rights, such as retaining counsel and filing administrative claims, end quote. So Miss Doe hasn't won yet but she's gotten her case remanded for further consideration of whether or not she can even really bring these claims in the first place, despite them being untimely. With quite a few helpful standards for equitable tolling in the immigration court or USCIS setting. Therefore, congratulations George W. Kramer for appellant. And that is Doe v. United States. <laughs> So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, Feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.